This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But, you know, part of it is just this idea of the presidency as the same kind of performance that Trump did on his reality show. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, joined by Jacob Weisberg, chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. His most recent book is Ronald Reagan, a biography. And joining us from Washington is FP columnist Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and the author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And Colin Call who is heading up FP's shadow government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He is currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program and was previously the deputy assistant to President Barack Obama and national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. And finally, David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Listen up, ER nerds. Now that we're on twice a week, we expect you to keep up and keep submitting your ideas and suggestions. We'll be unveiling some new mugs very soon. I know that's (laughs) incredibly exciting for everybody. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from not one but two tiny podcast studios, one high above Washington's DuPont Circle and another somewhere in hip Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. Welcome back, everybody. I would like to have a whole episode in which we don't mention the name of the President of the United States, but this is not that episode. (laughs) I want to help people understand the period that we live in, and I want to turn to literature, film, and movies to do that. Colin. Well, you know, in the previous podcast, we discussed whether the Americans was cutting a little bit too close to home these days with all of the concerns about Russian influence. I think there's something about that. But I would say that we're somewhere at the intersection of House of Cards, someone who was never supposed to be president, and Man in the High Castle, which envisions an alternative reality in which the Nazis won World War II. So I just I just refuse to believe that in the vast majority of timelines out there in the universe that Trump is the president and very many of them. But yet I'm stuck in this one. All right, Jacob, let me give it let's let's start with books, okay? Initially, the early days of the Trump administration, 1984 and Brave New World flew off the shelves. In the past week or so, I've come to the conclusion that the books people ought to be reading are either Jersey Kaczynski's Being There, about an accidental president who is a kind of an idiot, yeah. although that one was kind of a kind spirited one, or um the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. <laughs> Yes. What what to read now is a very interesting question. Plot Against America, the Philip Roth novel, is something that just seems, through the whole campaign, seems strangely relevant to me. But I think these dystopian novels, including the great ones like 1984, are weirdly a little bit beside the point because it gives you a picture of what authoritarian government would look like that I don't think is the American picture. It's not the threat we face right now. There's the... Um, 
the Sinclair Lewis novel, It Can't Happen Here, which I read during the campaign. That's very interesting. It's not a very good novel, but what it imagines politically is very astute, I think. And this is in the 1930s. It was more the populist who comes to power is more based on Huey Long. And interestingly, although he is, represents American fascism, he's against the European fascists because they're foreign. And so it extends the things that were happening in the United States to create a picture of an authoritarianism that's plausible here. And that's what I think we're kind of missing right now. Our whole frame of reference for totalitarianism, authoritarianism, is Soviet and Nazi dystopian, great dystopian literature. It's not quite right. But, you know, and it can't happen here, as you say, it's, it's an American fascist who is against foreign fascists because they're foreign. But we have now the possibility of an American fascist who's against all foreigners except foreign fascists. Well, this is the Manchurian candidate with the alternative ending, right? I mean, where we have, at least hypothetically, we may have a president who is beholden to a foreign power that has always been adversarial to the United States. And in, in the Manchurian candidate, of course, this disaster is averted. The tool of the enemies ends up being assassinated prior to being able to successfully gain power. But here we have a situation in which arguably, and we'll find out, right? I mean, this is being played out before our eyes. Arguably, high-ranking people in the White House and possibly the president himself are under the influence of Russian leaders. And it's something that I don't think we've ever experienced. And I, I was thinking about this, right? Because on some level, I was I was imagining a, a different hypothetical, one that would seem even crazier, right? Imagine we had some president in the future and we found out that president was in the pay of North Korea or Iran. On some level, if the American people voted for that person and that person gets into the White House and says, North Korea and Iran are our new best friends. They're our new allies. I'm now giving them our nuclear technologies because I'm forming an alliance with them. On some level... It ain't treason if the American people think it's fine. You know, I mean, that's just the end of the story. And and I think one of the interesting questions that's going to be played out right now with, with Donald Trump in the White House is, do the American people think it's OK that we have senior level officials, maybe even the president, who are compromised and under the influence of Russia? Maybe they don't care. I was going to say, Rosa, I mean, it's so interesting, but I think we still have this frame of reference of a world filled with ideology. And Putin may have been a Soviet spy once upon a time, but Russia is not the Soviet Union. And Donald Trump is someone we're we're not afraid of what he secretly believes. We're afraid he doesn't believe anything. I'm I'm afraid of what he secretly believes, though, Jacob. I don't think I think you're absolutely right. It's not it's not the bad old ideology of the Cold War. I don't think it's a communist plot, but I think it is certainly a modern kind of fascistic, anti-Islamic, anti-Semitic, pro-Christian form of populism that does not respect basic rights. So I, I there is an ideology there, although it is certainly not the same one as in the past. Well, you know, it was Kellyanne Conway who gave us alternative facts. It's Rosa Brooks who gave us alternative endings. Uh, See, choose your own adventure, mentor. Choose your own adventure. And I actually have a slightly different view now, because I think so much is now out about contacts without understanding the content between the Trump campaign and then later the Trump transition and the Russians, that at this point, I can't imagine that President Trump 
has got very much leeway to do anything with Russia, that almost anything that he tries to do will be put under such a microscope and examined in light of these suspicions, none of which have yet been proven about what the content of these conversations were about. Oh, there's the New York Times holding tight to that story it ran before the election, (laughs) that there was no truth to these links between Trump and the Russians. We've always said that there were conversations and links. We just don't know what's in them. And that's the critical thing. And that's the critical difference. Right. It could turn out that all Trump ever discussed as a joint beauty pageant. Uh, well, right. it could be. could have been and real right. estate deals, and it could have been Manafort talking about the future of Ukraine, and we just don't know yet. But what we do know— yeah, no, uh, Well, America thanks you for your, <laughs> dis- your restraint. But, but if I, Trump cared what anybody thought, it would have affected his policies, what he said about Putin and Russia before the election. One would you have know, thought, extru- yeah. The check you were, you're counting on that you just mentioned— it seemed to have no effect whatsoever on, you know, the one thing he asked for in the Republican platform was a sop to Putin. I mean, you would think that once you're accused of this, you're sort of careful. He even Trump even referred to that in the press conference last what week. Did, right? What are you talking about? Flynn got canned. And a day later, Mattis was in Europe saying we may moderate our involvement in NATO. You know, I mean, it was like these guys are brazen. They're just completely brazen. I don't they think are Mattis, changing U.S. I don't think Mattis is on that team. Mattis was giving a version of what Bob Gates and Barack Obama I, I, gave, which was I, you guys. I, he, I guys love I love Jim Mattis, but we can't give him a pass on using the word commitment. The commitment is the Article Five commitment that's in the NATO treaty. That's ironclad. It's not mm-hmm. conditional, mm-hmm. suggesting that we might moderate our willingness to come to NATO's back if they were attacked. That's not that's something that Jim Mattis almost certainly doesn't believe. He shouldn't have said it. Yeah. And I look, you know, Mattis has had a great career. He deserves a lot of of respect for his career up until this point. He now has to be judged on his career in this capacity. And in this capacity so far, he has shown no desire to stand up to Trump or to rectify impulses with the one exception that we know of regarding torture. Otherwise, he's been pliant, standing happily by while executive orders are filed and offering mealy-mouthed language with regard to NATO. Well, to be fair, I'm going to defend him. I'm going to defend him because he wrote a really nice blurb for my book. So, God damn it, he's, he's an <laughs> amazing man. Well, um, there's nothing. <laughs> no, well, this I, is how it works. This is the logic yeah. of yeah. Trump's America. Deep state. Right. Yeah, yes, um, exactly. But, but, he's very complimentary of me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but here's the qualified defense, and this is a defense. This is a defense. Ask me again in a few months how I feel about it. But I think the potential defense of Mattis is he clearly, he did not even know what that executive order said. All the leaks coming out of the Pentagon suggest that he was pretty blindsided by that executive order and that I am assuming that after that little signing ceremony where he was standing there smiling that he was having a bit of a temper tantrum about being put in that terrible position. There is a possibility, uh, and I don't know for sure because obviously I have not discussed this with him and I don't know, but the charitable possibility is that Mattis is sitting there thinking, I am the one grown up standing between this asshole and all out chaos and war and everything else. And I don't like this. This makes me terribly uncomfortable. But I think I need to be here as the one adult in the entire upper echelons of the U.S. government at this point. And that being said, obviously, at some point, things get bad enough that you do have to resign or be permanently compromised. I'm not sure he's there yet. You know, I, th- I think it is still quite possible that, that he is playing an inside moderating role and that if he left, we would all be really, really sorry. 
We're, we're back to what we were talking about in the last show about public service and moral responsibility, you know, and this also goes to the question of do you serve and if you serve and have some compunctions, when do you play what cards? You know, yeah, I really want Mattis there because he's the one person who seems like he might prevent something truly insane. You know, he could keep Trump from going to war. On the other hand, he has to weigh the compromises he has to make to stay there and be there. And in reality, a lot of people are not thinking about the moral compromises. They're thinking about power and what what opportunities they have personally and in their careers. So, you know, it's a really complicated picture, but I have a feeling that the jury will be out about Mattis for a long time. I mean, maybe into history, right? We'll see how what he does. It's a little early, David, I think, to judge him based on what he's done or not done so far. Oh, it's never too early to jump <laughs> to a conclusion. But I have to say, with regard to the NATO comment, I agree with Colin. I think stronger language was called for, and I think it was inappropriate timing for them to raise the issue of moderation. And I think that there have been a number of other instances in which the administration has gotten kind of ahead of its skis on foreign policy issues where a stronger voice would have been helpful. And he was, you know, there with the president with regard to the immigration order and stuff like that, which is not his beat, but it's still concerning. Okay, let me get try to get back. I was trying to start off on a light tone here. And we, we started with literature and movies that might put this all into perspective. I'm going to ask two more questions in that vein, and I'm going to open it up to all of you. Which film or television president do you think Trump is closest to? Because there is one answer, by the way, that's correct. <laughs> go, go on, Lord David. Voldemort? You may take Voldemort. Mm-hmm. That is a not a president, but yeah, it's a, we'll take that as a world leader. Voldemort, okay. He's, his name should not be spoken. That was where I started with this. Yes, David, Wait. Colin. I can't think, actually, of something in fiction. The the world leader he reminds me the most of, everybody talks about Putin. He's actually temperamentally not like Putin. The world leader he's the most like is Erdogan, and for reasons we can go into. But uh, he's off the cuff. He's always getting his bureaucracy (laughs) in trouble by saying things that uh, the rest of his government doesn't believe. Everything is about what he's reading about himself and his family in the press. I was in hours and hours and hours of meetings with Erdogan where we had really big issues to discuss on Iraq and Syria and everything else. And all he wanted to talk about were obscure court cases where he was afraid that court documents might be released that would embarrass his wife or something. So Trump reminds me more of Erdogan, but that's not a fictional issue. This is what happens when you have a show for foreign policy nerds that includes foreign policy nerds on the show. Yeah, it's like, what's a movie? But uh, We failed your quiz. You All right. Yeah, no, no, you I'm going to come back, I'm gonna come back to the what quiz. So, Jacob, the, oh, the movie is Mars Attacks. Go look it up. But, um, <laughs> Jacob, uh, let's David, pick up on I don't remember Colin. Mars Attacks being referred to in your in your lengthy history of the National Security Council. <laughs> it was not, but it was referred to in my ranking of film presidents. Oh. All right. Well, I think that might still be in my Netflix queue. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, but. you'll have to you have to check. I think Jack Nicholson played the president in Mars Attacks, if I recall correctly. But in any event, let's play Collins' game, okay? Let me turn to you, Jacob. Trump, Jung Un, or Caligula? Which well, <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the choice exactly? Who do I who do I want to have a beer with? Yeah. World leaders. <laughs> Right. If you were on a desert island, who would you rather be on a Uh, desert island with? No, no. World leaders that remind you of Trump could be from history or currently. Well, I mean, Berlusconi, 
Absolutely. But Erdogan is very good. I mean, I've met, uh, I've had a long meeting with Erdogan as well. And he had said something very similar to Trump's quote about, I'm the least anti-Semitic person you've ever met. And I was in the meeting with a couple of other Jewish journalists. And I think we all had the same reaction. Did we ask you about that? Right. Yeah. Hello, Jews. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Jews. <laughs> he also uh, hated the media. He also uh, hates the media uh, and the courts. Hates the media. Uh, well, just, while being a media mogul. And his he most trusted advisor is his son-in-law. black people, though. Yeah. He also loves the uh, Jews. Uh, <laughs> I think so he we've got Berlusconi, Erdogan. The movie Idiocracy is pretty great if you, yeah, haven't, if you haven't watched that. Idiocracy. If, if you yeah, haven't that's watched good. that. Yeah. that yeah, and there is a kind of president in, in there who's kind of like That's a, an excellent point. I'll tell you the yeah. movie, it's also a book that has been in my mind on and off uh, during the The Darwin Awards? Month. No, uh, okay. The Last King of Scotland which is about Idi Amin in Uganda. Oh, <laughs> the, the theme of it, of course, is it, this goes back to our earlier podcast discussion of the deep state. And, the you know, it's all these people who work for Idi Amin. It's particularly this young Scottish doctor is the main character who are trying to adapt to their dawning realization that their leader is insane dangerously insane and they have to figure out you know do you do you toady to him do you butter him up do you conspire against him which is really risky but that dawning realization that we're working for a crazy guy i wanted to go back well, to that's the, a that's a good one i want to go David, back i want you you used to cover north <laughs> you used to cover korea and i want you to do the comparison between him and kim and if you're unwilling to do that then i want you to sing the number i'm so ronery from team america <laughs> world police <laughs> Well, what we used to say about North Korea is that it was sort of like a, a family business that had a seat at the UN uh, in the United Nations. Security. And they were not on the Security Council, but certainly they are in, in the United Nations. And in President Trump, you have somebody who used to run a family business who now has the lead what, seat. What, but, dude. What do you mean used to run a family business? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Don't I've you remember? Some Ivanka bangles. You can. You right. can. You he's can, uh, he's turned it all over to his to his sons. I don't know what you're possibly talking about. But I wanted to go back to the Berlusconi comparison because it's in some ways the most interesting. When Berlusconi, and also because you're known around the New York Times as Bunga Bunga Sanger. That's it. That's it. Berlusconi used to deeply amuse George Bush when I was White House correspondent because we'd go to Italy and he'd meet with him and then Bush would come back and on Air Force One and he'd talk a little bit about meeting with Berlusconi and he'd talk about the wildest things he said and so forth. But at the end of it, the sort of unspoken joke was, he runs Italy, okay? So that's fine. You know, if they want to have kind of wacky politics, they've always had wacky politics. And, you know, in how the much end, damage not, can you do? How, yeah, exactly. Right. What can you do? <laughs> and so now I think the concern you hear in Europe is that you have somebody who reminds many Europeans, or so they tell me, of Berlusconi, but he's running the world's number one superpower with a nuclear arsenal on top of it all. Now, that may be. That may be a little unfair because there are a lot of differences between Berlusconi and Trump in many different directions. But I, I think the fundamental question that the allies are going to, to deal with here is the question of whether or not the real Donald Trump is the one that we heard during the campaign when he said to me and my colleagues, oh, it's OK if Japan and South Korea get uh, nuclear weapons or I'm not sure whether I would come to the defense of the Baltic states or whether it's the the Donald Trump we saw a little bit earlier this week because this has not been a linear presidency by any way, having 
a very normal meeting with the Japanese prime minister. Except for the handshake. The handshake was not normal. The handshake may not have been normal, but the meeting was... Dinner at the Mar-a-Lago was not very normal. What are you talking about? Dinner at Mar-a-Lago where they're like discussing secret matters at a public restaurant or or the factory takes the prime minister and uses him as a prop for some wedding that's down the hall. Hey, these people are giving a lot of money. Let's go drop another wedding. Or the fact where the guy with the nuclear football is... Posing <laughs> with <laughs> Facebook pictures with more guests. Yes, there was nothing normal about that. Was very Berlusconi. That's, <laughs> that's, that's very, very that Berlusconi. part was Berlusconi. However, the meeting itself and the discussion of issues with Japan—if you had substituted any other American president—it was as boring as any other meeting with the Prime Minister of Japan, and it was completely absent all that discussion of "I may pull back the troops," "You may need to go off and get your own nuclear weapons." It was the standard alliance-building words, even if we think everything behind it may have been different from that. Actually, I'm not 100 percent sure that I agree with you because the stance that he took with regard to North Korea was, we stand behind Japan. I don't recall that being the U.S. stance historically, was standing behind Japan. It was either with Japan or that we were standing there and Japan was near us, but that we were leading somehow. I think what he he meant, David, was that Japan was clearly within missile range and we're standing just outside of missile range. (laughs) People in your words. Yeah. (laughs) However, the next day, the next day he said that North Korea was a big problem that merited a strong response. So, I mean, what more clarity did you want? It, no, that's a that, yeah. wait until no. they, they cross the Twitter red line and we're all in trouble. Yeah. Or wait, wait till they put them on notice. I yeah. thought you were saying if if you if you had been listening in on that conversation and many people were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. OK, so here's the, the final literary reference of this particular discussion. Um, let me start with you, Rosa, because I'm just going to see if you even have any idea what I'm talking about. Um, which which reality television show oh, no, is David. most like oh, no, the no, Trump no, no, White no, House? <laughs> so, so are you going to compare it to The Apprentice? Or are you going to compare it to I think it might turn out to be sort of like Survivor, because everybody seems to be being Survivor. voted off the island. It's about it's basically, nice. you know, what disgusting, horrible thing will you do to remain part of the group? Um, <laughs> and who will, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see as people compete. Yeah, that's so true. The, wait, you might, just it, see Sean Spicer right. saying, I will eat Kellyanne Conway's brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bannon will say, all right, you may stay then. Right. Go. That's also fear oh, factor. Go on. <laughs> fear factor. Go. <laughs> yeah, the, well, that's true, except, you know, Harward was given the opportunity. It's like, eat this shit sandwich and you can be national <laughs> security advisor. Oddly, he, and he said, said, no, thank you. Oddly, he said, no. Jacob, which reality show is it? You're not asking world's expert on reality television here, um, but, you know, there are elements of all of them. I mean, clearly Trump is the bachelor, right? Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should talk about that at some point. But, uh, you know, his strange lifestyle is an interesting choice. And I'm willing, I'm going to go out on a limb that no one else will. But if we don't get to the end of the first term of the Trump administration without him trying to use the White House to have an inappropriate relationship with a woman, I would be deeply, deeply shocked. But go ahead. Yeah, I don't even really. I can't, I can't really add to that. Um, <laughs> but you're, you're assuming it's not happening already. But all right. Well, yeah. I'm not. I'm, yeah. I'm not. Sanger would know. But 
you guys tried to track down all the rumors about Trump in Russia, right? You know, there are some rumors <laughs> in the national in the national security sphere that even I cannot bring myself to go pursue. I want to go back to nice, safe topics like what countries are secretly acquiring nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I okay. But you were going on to compare it with other themes and other reality shows. Yeah, so I can't give you the specific reality shows. It seems like all of them. It seems like all the ones I've ever had the misfortune to watch for 15 minutes. But, you know, part of it is just this idea of the presidency as the same kind of performance that Trump did on his reality show. The way that he hires and fires people, it's as if there is, you know, it's going to be edited later and presented to the public as a game. And it's, you know, he also says these idiotic things. He had this press conference and in the middle of it, just complete non sequitur. He's like, I get really good ratings, don't I? And it's like, good ratings. You're the president of the United States. What does that even mean? It's and, all he cares and no, about. no, his presidential ratings the, are not good, just for the record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but he doesn't mean those. Fake he news. means television ratings. He means television ratings. He just means, are people watching? Because he is President Tinkerbell. And if people aren't applauding, he fades. I mean, that's an established fact. David, draw upon your vast knowledge. I'm you're going to I'm going to say what reality show is Trump like and you're going to come up with some fly fishing show. Well, I could do that, but I'm going to save you of that. No, I have to say that having gone to one of Sean Spicer's recent press conferences, having watched the SNL takeoff of it and seeing Melissa McCarthy do Sean Spicer and then watch Sean Spicer do these press conferences, you begin to wonder, am I watching Sean Spicer (laughs) doing an imitation of (laughs) Melissa McCarthy doing an imitation of Sean Spicer? Because, you know, there are really has got, you know, it's 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 a little bit like, you know, after you watch. Um, so all, confused. That's right. After you've watched all the president's men, I mean, the question people used to ask in the Washington Post newsroom was, was Ben Bradley trying to play the portrayal of him and all the president's men? So it happens. On a more serious note, what strikes me about this presidency is that while we have seen these remarkably bad rollouts like the executive order on immigration, pulling back on other things, the firing of General Flynn and all that – interspersed in the middle of it are things that are done relatively normally and relatively well. For example, the nomination the other day of a Supreme Court justice nominee in Judge Gorsuch was executed perfectly well. The nominee is somebody who, whether you agree with his politics or you disagree with his politics, certainly has all the right background qualifications, education, time in the courts. And you sort of wonder, how can a White House that gets it right on a few big things like that, and a Supreme Court nomination is no small thing, then get it so wrong on far, far smaller items? Do you have two other examples, things they've done professionally and well? I'm just I agree about the about the Supreme Court nomination, but I'd be hard pressed to come up with number two and three behind that. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. Not as bad as asking you what reality show Okay, well, is, I can, I'm can. i going to put everybody on the spot in just this vein. Let me start with you, Colin. What's going right in U.S. foreign policy right now? What are the foreign policy successes of the Trump years? There are no foreign policy successes of the Trump years, but I will tell you something he's likely to claim credit for, which is the campaign against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria is going pretty well, especially in Iraq. And uh, he inherited a campaign that was that was on track. You know, half of 
Mosul having been taken, uh, Raqqa being surrounded, the Islamic State losing more than half its territory in Iraq, about a third in Syria, foreign fighter flow down by 50 or 90 percent, their revenue slash morale plummeting. I mean, the caliphate is really getting kicked in the crotch. And that was happening before he showed up. So I guarantee that when Mosul is taken based on the plan that was approved by Barack Obama, that Trump will say it was all his doing. More seriously, there are some tricky issues they'll have to work through in Syria. And I just don't have any confidence that he'll be able to manage the complexity. In fact, some of the stuff that was in David's reporting and on the National Security Council is, I think it is hard to exaggerate the degree to which they have had to dumb things down to drive up stuff to the president because the professional staff over there just keeps hearing this stuff's too complicated. This stuff is too complicated. And guess what? The world is complicated. So do you back the Russians or the Turks or do you go along with or do you go on the current play with the Kurds? There are big geopolitical issues here that have to be handled deftly. And there's no there's no sense that Trump can even wrap his head around it, let alone make a decision. So what you're saying is the president is too stupid to be president. Let me put it this way. I worked for Barack Obama and I would say two things are indisputable facts about Barack Obama. He's one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. And he's a genuinely good man. And I have my doubts of the current president on both those scores. Uh, David, I'll give you one that is, if not going well, at least not going as badly as we initially feared. And it gives me my second example to give Jacob. But it took a while for me to to get to it. (laughs) When he had the conversation with Xi Jinping, the first thing that the president did in this highly scripted conversation they had was reaffirm the one China policy that has existed since Richard Nixon, right? Since Nixon first recognized China and and got us on this path. And you'll remember that during the campaign and after the conversation in the transition with the president of Taiwan, that there was all this discussion that the one China policy was going to be an issue that would be negotiated along with trade deals and all that. And someone somehow pulled President Trump back from that and said, look, you're not going to get anything going and no discussion underway with the Chinese if you don't reaffirm the bedrock of the relationship first. And so would I call that an accomplishment? No. Do I call it a a train crash avoided? Yes. (laughs) Okay. We only have a couple minutes here. Jacob? Oh, uh, there are lots of things. I mean, undisturbed, excellent relations with the Bahamas, relations with <laughs> Liechtenstein are going really well. New Zealand, no problems there. I, I mean, I, I think I said last time the emergence of Canadian moral leadership. I don't think that's a joke. It's, it's really interesting to see. Do you look Tr- at Justin Trudeau the same way Ivanka did? <laughs> he's he's definitely a stud muffin. He's uh, even I wow. can appreciate that. But uh, no, you know, Christian Friedland, great former journalist who is now the foreign minister. I mean, I, it's 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 encouraging to look at Canada and see it standing up for the values that the United States should be standing up for. I also will admit to having a twinge of pleasure when I see defense contractors quaking in terror at what Trump may say next. I mean, he may take any of them out and shoot them for some totally unfair reason, but they should be a little more worried. I think they're a little more worried now. They'll get everything they want. Just just watch. <laughs> there's, there's certain things that always happen. Presidents always come around to writing checks to defense contractors. They always come around to doing trade deals, even no matter what they said during the election. Rosa, what's your favorite big success of the Trump years so far? Not nuclear annihilation yet. I think we were going to have to be satisfied with that so far. No Armageddon. No Armageddon yet. But I think 
my best case scenario, and obviously it's 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 one month in. But the best case scenario, I think, would be a variant of what what Jacob suggests, which is that the vacuum, the moral and political leadership vacuum and soon possibly military vacuum that will be created by Donald Trump's America, maybe best case scenario pushes other states who are our allies and do share the values that I like to think we still have somewhere deep down step up and that we end up in four years or in eight years when Donald Trump is no longer in the Oval Office with a more robust and more responsive global system because other countries have had to sort of step in and fill some of the gaps in a way that will be good for us and good for everybody in the long run. That, that's very optimistic. I don't think that that happening is a foregone conclusion. I can also imagine very in our in our Choose Your Own Adventure book of the next four years, I can also imagine a series of very, very, very bad things happening. But I don't I don't think that that rosier scenario is impossible. David, I think there's one, well, thing, that, there's one thing though yes. here that I think is, I think that what Jacob and Rosa mentioned about if if Donald Trump was just aloof, right, he just didn't care about the world and took a step back, then maybe some of the stronger Democratic states would step forward and try to fill the void. The problem is he's not just going to be aloof. He's going to step back from the countries that we depend on to solve every single global problem from the Islamic State to Ebola, and he's going to embrace other states, most notably Putin's Russia, who actively seek to undermine those democratic states. So if he was just aloof, then maybe there's some chance that others step up in a positive way. But if he steps back from our friends and leans in in a transactional way with countries that seek spheres of influence and to actively destroy the liberal international order, I don't see how that ends well, no matter what the Choose Your Own Adventure book looks like. You know, Collins well, raised the big uh, question uh, that, that, you know, Russia is really going to be the one that hangs out here. Going into this administration, David, what did we think? That an emerging China, a rising and increasingly powerful China, was in many ways the biggest geopolitical challenge. And I still think that's the case. But a weak Russia about whom – about which we don't understand the president's relationship I think is going to be the riskiest case. And it's risky both ways because – if all of the recent charges force him to basically step back and do nothing, then the Russian activity that we've seen that's been so malign around Europe and even in our own elections will continue. And I don't think he can move forward with the kind of relationship he has in mind with the Russians, given this level of scrutiny and doubt. You know, you guys are a buzzkill. We were on a roll. There were good things happening. Liechtenstein, New Zealand, there were some positive. We were finding some things to be happy about. Armageddon hadn't happened yet. And you're and Colin Sanger bringing along, us down. Just, you know, right. You're bringing <laughs> us down. Look, I think there's a lot. I think Jacob's point about the other countries stepping up is a positive thing. The point about the activization of the opposition in the United States and people's engagement in democracy very positive thing. Maybe the most positive thing of all, we were worried that Trump plus the Republican leadership on the Hill would get a lot done. And so far, they found it really hard to get things done. Admittedly, their impulses, like making it possible for crazy people to buy guns or put coal dust in your water again or uh, you know, undermine the Voting Rights Act, are a little bit unnerving. But so far, they're not really very good at this governing thing, and that could actually reduce the negative consequences from it. I'm going to cling 
to these little rays of sunshine, little bits of optimism, because Trump's not going away this week. He may in the next couple of years, but he's going to be around for a while. And I think we need to find some balance. Perhaps that will come from not discussing Trump. And next week we won't discuss Trump. Perhaps it'll come from hugging our families and having a nice meal and not thinking about this kind of stuff. Unfortunately for the listeners of this show, these e, you know, the ER nerds out there, this is all they think about. Their lives are empty. <laughs> they, they think about this around the clock. I watch them on Twitter. They're having nervous breakdowns. I really think we're in a moment of unprecedented national cognitive dissonance where people can't actually believe what's going on. And I would only urge you to turn it off, go watch one of these movies, read a book, have a sandwich, at, not a shit sandwich, have a sandwich. <laughs> and, and if you're asked to become national security advisor, we advise you to decline. Decline. Exactly. Decline. Just like America is. I heard Rothkopf Rothkopf is next on the list. They said he wrote the book. He can come in and do it. Yeah. Let me tell you, if that would be a 370 million person list and I would, that would be the last person. (laughs) Well, I I, want to wish Sanger another great week with Secure Drop. (laughs) (laughs) I saw him checking confide over here. Is that, is that appropriate for me to say? Yeah. Yeah. Confide. Yeah, well, I, apparently, confide anybody can check. It was but, back and forth um, between that and tender, but I'm not. And Jacob, I just want to tell you that the last stuff that you dropped in with those early stories from Slate, they were fabulous. <laughs> yes, Slate, <laughs> the early days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody is going to be. Yes. Anyway. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jacob. Jacob, thank you for the use of the studio up here. And we will be back with all of you again next week. Thanks, folks. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP, And to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.